if uh, your last couple weeks have been anything like my family's, we've been enjoying watching the, the Summer Olympics. And uh, one thing that, that always strikes me is the investment that these athletes make into their, their events and uh, the time they pour, pour into these events. Um, they, they pour hours and hours and, and months and months and years and years to be the very best in the world at this one activity. And what always entertains me, I find amusing during the Summer Olympics, is what some of these people become defined by. So, I mean, you could be like the world's best double canoer or pole vaulter. I mean, pole vaulting maybe at one time had practical application, but I've never felt the need to pole vault over anything. Um, or, yeah, nor would anyone want to see that. Um, trampolining is another Olympic event that is uh, something I do in my backyard, but I've never aspired to be the world's best trampolinist, but some people do. But my favorite is race walking. And, and there are certain people that can, that can say they are the fastest walkers in the world. And that's an Olympic event. But these people, they, they're, they're defined by this, this aspiration, this one shot of, of glory. Uh, yesterday, Christine and I, Christine had, I don't know if she put it on or who put it on, but uh, the Olympics were on. It was probably Christine or I because my kids normally don't turn on the TV. But uh, it was the end of the women's triathlon. And the, the U.S. triathlete, Gwen Jorgensen, she crossed the finish line in first place and immediately broke down into tears, just overcome by emotion. Uh, her approach to the finish line, she had a, a fairly significant lead. The commentators were going on and on about just the, the massive investments she'd made by moving overseas and being trained by this coach and this coach. And uh, this, this was her, her life for this one moment of glory at the Olympics. All of her decisions over the previous several years were, were largely devoted to accomplishing this, this quest. Her, her idea of being the, the world's greatest women's triathlete fueled how she, how she lived. It, it informed what she desired and how she thought. Now, this is true for any number of Olympic athletes. The story we're often told, and we're told again and again throughout, especially on NBC, throughout the Olympics about these athletes getting up dreaming each morning of representing their country and, and being the best in the world and winning gold. Their identity as Olympians, as double canoers or pole vaulters or runners or gymnasts, it shapes how they live. It shapes the decisions they make from, from where they live to, to what they eat. Now there's something compelling for us in this. There's a compelling example for us in this. Because for those who have placed their trust and their hope in Christ... You have a new identity. You are no longer defined by your desires and your thoughts, your appetites, your family, or your country. You are defined by Christ. This new identity in Christ, it should shape and inform everything we do. Just like those, those Olympians, who we are determines how we live. Who we are determines how we live. Now throughout the first half of Colossians, Paul has been holding out Christ to us and rooting us in Him. And before we dive into our text this morning, let's just go back and briefly be reminded of the purpose and the occasion of this letter. Now, Paul is writing to the, the Colossian church. It's a group of Christians that, that Paul has, has never met. 
The gospel was likely brought to Colossae by Epaphras when Paul proclaimed the gospel of Jesus Christ to the Ephesians. Now Epaphras had gone back to, to his hometown, to Colossae, and explained to, to those around him the hope that was to be found in the gospel. And after a short while, some within and around the Colossian church, they began to teach that these Christians, they needed something a little bit more in order to experience true spirituality. The buzzword that they kept coming back to was this idea of, of fullness. In order to experience a full life and, and full, true spirituality, you need, you need some special knowledge. If you want to experience true fulfillment, then you need to follow certain laws and, and maintain specific practices. They were saying, you know, what Epaphras has told you is all well and good, it's fine, but but you need something a little more if you, want, if you want fullness. Now, alarmed at this message and concerned for his brothers and sisters in Christ that they may be led astray, Epaphras, he goes to Rome where Paul is in prison. And he, he first tells Paul about all that God is doing in the Colossian church, about the, the people who have been saved and, and the faith and hope and love that they exhibit. But then he tells them about this, this concern that he has for them. And so Paul out of his, his care for, for his brothers and sisters in the Lord, he writes this letter. Now in chapter 1 we saw how, how Paul gave, gave thanks to God for the Colossians, for what they had exhibited through Epaphras that he had heard about. And he, he prays for them. And he prays for them in verses 9 and 10 of chapter 1 that they may be filled with the knowledge of God's will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. It was Paul's prayer that they walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. And then Paul, Paul shifts his focus and, and, and seeks to fix his reader's sights on Christ, on, on who He is, the image of the invisible God, the One who is before all things and in whom all things hold together. Christ is the One whom the fullness of God, the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And this God-man, Christ Jesus... He is reconciled to God, all those who hope in Him. Then in chapter 2, Paul, Paul unpacks his ministry. And, and he talks about his, his, his goal and his focus being to hold out Christ and to exhort Christians to walk in Him. Walk in Christ. And then, it's been a little while, the series has been a little bit just disjointed, but as we've walked through chapter 2, uh, both Larry and I uh, unpacked various warnings that Paul gives the Colossian Christians. He warns them not to be taken captive by philosophy and empty deceit. He warns them not to be defined by what they eat or drink or to be caught up in, in a self-made religion. He warns them against legalism, as Larry unpacked two weeks ago. And now as we move into chapter 3, uh, we, we come to one of the one of the most important passages of Colossians in, in its flow of, of thought. Now Paul has he's unpacked the glory of Christ. He's, he's given a lot of indicatives, what we have in Christ. And he's transitioning, beginning in verse 5 in particular, to imperatives, to, to telling the Colossians how then they should live. Now the four verses we're going to look at together today, they're, they're a key that, that unlocks what what life for the Christian is motivated by and focused on. Understanding this passage can shed light on so much of Scripture, and most certainly it sheds light on the rest of Paul's letter. 
Colossians 3, verses 1 through 4, it, it acts as a bridge. It takes us from looking at the fullness that we have in Christ and, and bringing us to how we should live in light of this reality. Now, two weeks ago, Larry spoke on the passage preceding this. And he highlighted that, that our opposition to legalism is not opposition to God's law and commands. And that's what we're going to be seeing more and more as Paul lays out what, what life is supposed to look like for the Christian through the rest of chapter 3 and into chapter 4. But before he gets there, he provides this, this foundation, this foundation for our obedience, for, for how we are to live. And it's here in Colossians 3, verses 1 through 4. Now when we read God's Word each week, it's God addressing us. And we've done this once or twice before, but as we read God's Word, let's stand together out of honor and, and reverence for the Word of God. This is the Word of the living God, inspired, infallible, and inerrant. Colossians 3, verses 1-4. through 4. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth, for you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with Him in glory. This is the Word of God. You can take your seats. Now in our passage today, we see something of what happens when we are united with Christ. What happens when we find our identity in Christ? Now this, this new identity that we have in Christ has implications for how we are to live our lives. It has implications for how you go to work tomorrow or how you treat your kids tomorrow. Because we are in Christ, Paul is saying, live then like this. Now for us today, we're going to look at this, this foundation, our identity for this new way of living and see that Paul gives us, he gives us two commands. So the big idea that I'll be getting at this morning is this. The Christian's identity in Christ should transform your affections and your thoughts. The Christian's identity in Christ should transform your, your affections and your thoughts. Because of who you are in Christ, your desires and your thinking, they should, they, they have, and they, they will change. Your desires and your, your thoughts. Now we'll focus just on these two simple points. First, your identity in Christ transforms your affections. We'll be looking at verse 1. Paul begins here in verse 1 saying, If then, if then you have been raised with Christ. Now Paul is not asking here whether or not this is true of you. Paul's pointing to this new idea. It's, it's since, because you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above. Since this has happened, since you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above. You have a new identity and this new identity gives you new, new desires. Seek the things that are above. Paul is saying that because of our union with Christ, because we are found in Him, keep seeking the things that are above. It's a, it's a continual habit and practice. Keep seeking the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Our affections, our desires, our treasures... They should be above where Christ is. Now this, this idea, this truth is essential for Christian growth. 
If you are in Christ, then you must desire things above. Now, the idea of things being above, and we're going to see it later in in verse 2, above and, and below, it's not a spatial idea. It's not just seek things that are in in heaven. Although it has that, that connotation, it's more qualitative. It's more about the quality of the thoughts, the, the essence of the thoughts that you have. To seek things that are above or to th- seek things that are, are spiritually minded, that are God-oriented. And yes, in many ways those are heavenly things, but, but Paul's call is not to a detached spirituality, detached Christianity. So what are these, these things above, though? What, what are we to seek? These things above, ultimately, they are about Christ. Our affections don't long for stuff. We are to long for, for Christ. The Christian's desire is to be for Christ. Not just longing for the blessings that come from Christ, but to have Christ Himself. One commentator says that our call as Christians is to daily hold fast to Christ as the center and source of all our joys. Daily hold fast to Christ as the center and source of all our joys. So, so we must ask ourselves then, what, what keeps us from Christ? What are these, these competing desires that get in the way of seeking the things that are above, seeking Christ? What do we allow to be the center and source of our joys over against Christ? Now, for some this morning, it might be, be comfort. And it's a desire for, for comfort and a life that is just comfortable. That drives your decisions. That's what you're seeking. Maybe for you, it's ease. And, and that can go along with comfort. You just want an easy life. Just don't bother me. I just want it. Just easy life. Maybe it's security, whether that be financial security or, or physical safety. Maybe that's a, a desire that you have that... that competes with seeking things that are above. Or maybe it's just good health. Maybe you just want to be healthy. And that is where your hope is set. And these things, they're not necessarily bad things. But what matters is what's, what's at the foundation of these things? What motivates the decisions that we make? Maybe for you, it's, it's approval from others. Maybe that's, that's the desire that drives your decisions, your day-to-day life. You want other people to think well of you, so you behave a certain way. You say certain, certain things. You do certain things. You look a certain way. You crave approval. Now in Psalm 16, David says this, I say to the Lord, You are my Lord. I have no good apart from You. David's saying, Outside of You, Lord, there is there's nothing good. Does this describe You? Does this describe what you live for. In the way you live, can one see that your affections are for Christ? Now, uh, Jesus, He teaches on this in, in the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew chapter 6. If you want to, you can turn there. I'm going to read, read a few verses from there. Matthew chapter 6, verse 19. And Jesus says this. It's a passage that will be familiar to you. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. 
Jesus goes on, the eye is the lamp of the body. What we see, what we desire is the the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Our, our call as Christians is to have affections that are for Christ. We are called to seek the things that are above. The, uh, the Christian's desire, it's not primarily oriented outward. It's not primarily oriented towards that which is around us, whether it be the stuff of the world or the relationships we have or, or the circumstances we long for. The Christian's desire is also not to be oriented inward. We're not to be looking for hope within, in how we live or in our, or in our spiritual experience. The Christian's desire must be oriented, not outward, not inward, but, but upward. Our call is to desire Christ. Now a helpful way to, to evaluate this is to ask yourself, when I thank God, what are the, the first things that I thank Him for? When I thank God, what are the first things that, that come to mind? What are the first things I thank Him for? Do I thank Him primarily for, for temporal blessings? Or for the one who bestows those blessings, the giver of those gifts? Am I grateful first for temporal things or for things above? It's not wrong to be grateful and to express thanks to God for temporal things. That is not what I'm saying. That's not what Paul is saying. That's not wrong. But where is our heart? Where do our affections lie? And are they for Christ and for God? Do we see that we have no good apart from Christ? So when I thank God, what are the things that I thank Him for? Brothers and sisters, because, because you are in Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Now Paul, he then goes on to address our, our thoughts. And that's point number two. Your identity in Christ transforms your thoughts. Your identity in Christ transforms your thoughts. Is verses 2 through 4. Paul says in verse 2, he says, Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. Now this is not just a, a restatement of what he has just said. He's adding our thoughts to our affections. This union with Christ, it changes what we long for and what we think about. It shapes the, the object of our desires and what we set our minds on. Paul is not saying that we are to be detached people from this world. We're not to be monks wandering in the wilderness. In fact, over the next several verses, 3, 5 through 4, 4, 6, I think it is, Paul unpacks just how we're called to to live in this world, how we are called to interact with others, how we are called to be good fathers and mothers and good business people and good church members and sons and daughters. He's not saying don't think about those around you. What Paul is after is the the orientation of our minds. So let me ask you, where does your mind go when it's in neutral? Is your mind set on things above? What do you think about when you have nothing in particular to think about? Where does your mind 
drift. In the mundane moments of your day, maybe you're, maybe you're brushing your teeth or you're folding laundry or you're driving to or from work, where does your mind go? This, this can seem to be a, just an uncomfortable question. I mean, it's, uh, I don't know, it's kind of introspective and I don't know where my mind goes. Where, ask yourself, where does your mind go? Be aware tomorrow as you're, you're doing, going through the mundane of life. Where does your mind go? The Christian is called to spiritual mindedness. The Christian is called to, to spiritual mindedness. Set your mind on things above. Now, this mindset, this, this spiritual mindedness, it's not about intellect. It's not about smarts or degrees or, or IQs, but it's about the disposition and the orientation of our mind. Where do we go? Now, when you were in Christ, you don't need something beyond Christ. Because as, as chapter 2, verse 10, as we looked at before, it says, you have been filled in Him. You have all you need in Christ. So set your mind on Him. There's nothing else you need apart from Christ. As the hymn says, turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in His wonderful face, and the things on earth will grow strangely dim in the light of His glory and grace. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Now here in verse 3, Paul gets to the the basis for for the setting of our mind upon things above. Verse 3 and 4, it says, For you have died. And your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with Him in glory. Again, set your mind on things above because of who you are. Now Paul goes to to a past reality, a present reality, and a future reality. We're going to look at these. First, a past reality. You have died. This is who you are. You have died. As verse 20 of chapter 2 says... To the elemental spirits of the world, you have died. You have died with Christ. And having been buried with Him, as 2.12 says, you have died and been buried with Him. This is something that has happened. If you've placed your hope in Christ, this has already happened for you. Now through His death, we have been set free from bondage to the temporal attractions of this world, from bondage to our flesh. If you are in Christ, this has happened. It's in the past. You have died. And then in the present, your life is hidden with Christ in God. Your life is hidden with Christ in God. Now what in the world does that mean? Well, it does not mean that we are to be some kind of spiritual super spies, keeping our true identity hidden and secret. And then like, like Clark Kent, when the need arises, we put on our Superman cape and, and now we're Christians. And then we go back to our, our normal, mundane uh, life. No, that's not at all what we are called to be. So then what does it mean to be hidden with Christ in God? It means that, that although in this world your sin will obscure our true identity, if you are in Christ, you are safe and secure in God. To be hidden with Christ is to be safe and secure in God. There is no doubt before God who you are when you are in Christ. No doubt before God who you are when you are in Christ. This gets at what we were talking about earlier when Lucy came and brought her word about condemnation. There's no doubt about who you are when you are in Christ. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. 
You are his son. You are his daughter. This is a present reality right now. Right now, this is who you are. Your life is hidden with Christ in God. So look to the one you have been raised with. Behold him there, the risen lamb. The, my perfect spotless righteousness. He, he is my righteousness. Right now, he is my righteousness. He is your righteousness. You have died with him and have been raised with him. He is the great unchangeable I am. The king of glory and of grace. Now, one with himself, I cannot die. My soul is purchased by his blood. My life is hid with Christ on high, with, with Christ, my Savior and my God. In Christ, in the good shepherd, you have security and safety. Right now, right now, this is what you have in Christ. Jesus says in John 10, he says, I give my sheep eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. My life is hid with Christ on high, with Christ my Savior and my God. There is nothing, there is nothing that can change this reality. Nothing. Nothing can separate what God has joined together. When you are in Christ, no tribulation, no, no distress, no worry and fear, not death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Your life is hidden with Christ in God. What a hope we have in this very present reality. Your life is hidden with Christ in God. In the past, we have died with Christ. In the, the present, we are hidden with Christ. And in the future, we are glorified with Christ. This, this present reality of being found in Christ, will, we will know fully and finally in glory. There is a day coming. There is a day coming when Christ, who, who is your life, appears. And you will stand before God, spotless. You will stand without sin, without imperfection. You will be seen by all to be absolutely and completely in Christ. His glory will be your glory. His glory will be our glory. Right now, right now, our lives, they're marked by sin. We, we fail those around us. We, we hurt those around us through our sin. And while our sin causes this hurt and pain to those, those we love, in Christ, we will experience complete sanctification on that day. Just last night, I was in my study preparing this sermon, and Corey, my oldest son, he got out of bed and came down after he'd been put to bed, and he interrupted me. And I was impatient, and I was annoyed, and I did not express love and affection, and I, I sinned against him by speaking impatiently to him. And it was sinful, and this is what our sin does. It, it, it obscures who we are in Christ. Our sins hurt those around us. But because we are in Christ, we labor and we fight against sin. We seek to put it to death. And this is where Paul is going to go after this, beginning next week. But before he goes there, he reminds the Colossian Christians and, and us of just who we are in Christ. 
And he points to, to just who we, we will be when Christ appears in glory. In our lives on this earth, we, we are being sanctified. But a day is coming. A day is coming when sin will be no more. And our sanctification will be full and final and complete. And we will be in Christ. What a future reality this is that, that, to hope in and to look at. John writes about this very thing in, in 1 John chapter 3. He says this, See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him, because we shall see Him as He is. And everyone, everyone who thus hopes in Him purifies himself as He is pure. When He appears, we will be like Him. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with Him in glory. Now, knowing our identity in Christ, it must transform our minds. Our identity as Christians, it completely changes our desires, our affections, and our thoughts. Our desires are to be directed to God. Our thoughts are to be set on God. So, so how do we seek and set our minds on things above? How do we cultivate this Godward orientation and spiritual mindedness? How do we orient our desires and thinking to Christ? And that's where we're going to be spending the rest of the time answering that question. Now, there are many ways that this question could be answered. Each passage has, has an interpretation that, that should be God-inspired, but has many applications. God's, God's Word is sufficient for all of life, for every circumstance, but I'm going to focus on just a few particular applications for us. First, how do we cultivate this, this spiritual-mindedness? Spend time with God. Spend time with God. Let this be your first priority, to know God more. Psalm 1 says, Blessed is the man. Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the way of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. But his delight, his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water which yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. Be like that man. Or be like those Olympians. We actually have to take steps to be who we are, just like they do. They want to be the, the world's greatest double canoer or the fastest walker. They give their lives to the, that, that task. And they give their lives to this hope for a, a fleeting, passing, brief moment of glory. How much more should we labor to know God in His Word? We don't prepare for, for a moment of glory, but we prepare for eternal glory. How much more should we give ourselves and be motivated to give ourselves to seeking things that are above? So read your Bible. Read your Bible. Read it every morning. Read it at night. There's, there's no, nothing that says that if, if you're going to have a quiet time, it just has to be in the morning or it just has to be at night, just one time a day. Quiet time, one time a day. It's okay to do more. It's okay to spend more time in God's Word. Psalm 1, on His law, He meditates day and night. It's a constant 
orientation to, to God and to His, who He is as He's revealed Himself in His Word. Another way to spend time with God is to pray. When Christine and I go out to dinner together, we, we talk to one another. Fancy that? It's a novel idea. And we talk to one another to, to get to know one another more, to enjoy one another, to build a relationship. And when we spend time with God, that, that's what we should seek to do. We, we pray and we, we express our cares to God. We put our cares on, on God and we, we pray. And God speaks to us through His Word. So read your Bible and pray and, and meditate and memorize Scripture. Meditate on and memorize Scripture. Another, another way that we don't often think of as, as a way to cultivate this spiritual mindedness under spending, spending time with God is to fast. Now fasting, if you're like me and love food and are grateful to God for the gift that food is and, and probably enjoy that gift too much at times, fasting is a wonderful way to cultivate dependence on God. There is little that makes you more aware of, of your need for other things and, and makes you more aware of how much you think about, or I think about food. <laughs> when I fast, I think about food a lot. And uh, it is a wonderful reminder to turn to God, to look to God, to depend on God. So consider fasting, fasting for a meal or fasting for a day. What I spend my time doing, it determines, it determines what I think about and what I desire. So when you spend more time with God, you will think about God more. Every day, whether it be listening to talk radio or listening to music or watching TV or even conversing with those around you, every day you're, you're bombarded with, with ideas and things that are after your affections and your desires. And the more time you spend on something, the more you think about it. If, uh, if you watch a, a series of, of TV shows recently, my wife and I watched the, what's it called, the next Food Network star to see who's going to be the next Food Network star. It's about food. <laughs> and uh, ironically enough. And, uh, but as, as we watch that, I start to think about the show at random times in the day. And... Uh, that's what happens. That's what we spend our time on. It determines what we think about. So spend time with God. Spend your time with God. Second, prioritize the church. Hebrews 3, 12 and 13 says this, Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. The Bible, it doesn't have a category. For a Christian that, that flies solo. Doesn't have a category for one who neglects Christian community. Those who are in Christ, they're brought into the people of God. And this is what this is what God has been about from the very beginning, establishing a people for himself and for his glory. And he does this. He does this in Christ. So don't neglect to meet together. Don't neglect the the preaching of God's word. Now, I don't say that just as the preacher hoping that you'll listen to me. I say that because when we hear God's Word preached, God is speaking. I'm not here to present my thoughts. I'm here to present God's thoughts. And God speaks to us through His Word, and He has chosen to use the preaching of His Word to make clear His Word. Don't view Sunday mornings as just one option among many for your weekend. 
It's an, it's an opportunity to be fed, both, both through God's Word, through the preaching of word, the Word, through songs that are sung, through prayers that are prayed, through fellowship and conversations that you'll have. Our gatherings, they function as this, this reorientation to God. One, one author, he talks about cultural liturgies. And the idea of cultural liturgies being we are always being shaped and, and formed by the things around us. So when we go to the mall, we're being shaped to desire certain things, to want to live a certain way, to look a certain way. And these things are happening whether we like it or not. There are all kinds of these cultural liturgies as he defines them. And church, the gathered church on a Sunday morning, is a place where we, we can be reoriented to God. Six days out of the week, we, we can be bombarded by, by messages, that, messages that are contrary to God. Messages that are, that are of the world, of the, the earth, as Paul would say. And church is an opportunity to be reoriented to who God is. So, through the scriptures that we read this morning, through the songs that were sung, through the encouragement that's provided, through the preaching of God's Word, through the reading of God's Word, we are being reoriented and re reshaped, countershaped in one sense, to the things that are above. Seek the things that are above. Set your mind on the things that are above. And one way to do that is by prioritizing church. Lastly, I want to highlight one that we don't often think about. That's to think about death. Think about death. To cultivate spiritual mindedness, think about death. Our life, our life is short. It's but a breath. We will soon pass from this earth. Now thinking about death, it, it sobers us. It puts the cares of this world into perspective. It helps us to understand that which is important and that which is fleeting. But death hurts. Death is, is scary. And it, it can hurt us and those we love the most. But, but listen to this encouragement from 17th, 17th century Puritan Lewis Bailey. He says this, Pitch the anchor. Pitch the anchor of your hope on the firm ground of the Word of God, who is promised in your weakness to perfect His strength. And Christ will shortly turn all your temporal pains into eternal joys. Yes, death is painful. Death entails suffering. But brothers and sisters, take heart. If, if we are children of God, Paul writes in Romans 8, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we, we suffer with Him in order that we may also be glorified with Him. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing, are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. All that we face in our suffering, all that we go through in death, is not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. In death, in death, we will be brought into communion with God. In death, we will experience everlasting joy and peace. In death, we will be free from all sin and pain. And in death, we will receive the inheritance that Christ has promised to us and purchased for us. Lewis Bailey again writes this, You may exchange your brass for gold, your vanity for felicity, your vileness for honor, your bondage for freedom, your lease for an inheritance, and your mortal state for an immortal life. Contemplating the reality of death for all of God's elect, 
helps to, helps to reorient our minds to the things that are above, where Christ is. We are a church this morning and every Sunday. We are a church full of dying people. Some of us are closer to death than others. Let us not, let us not fear this reality as those who have no hope. Let us care for one another. Let us pray for one another. And let us learn from one another. This perspective that death brings, those who are closer to death, they have a lot of wisdom. Lots of wisdom in the priorities of this life, in the cares of this world. They have a perspective that many of us don't have. So engage them. Learn from them. And as we anticipate entering this everlasting rest in our true home, be, be spurred on by one another. And what a hope we have when we have, we have in Christ no guilt in life. We have no fear in death. This is the power of Christ in me. From life's first cry to final breath, Jesus is the one who commands our destiny. No power of hell, no scheme of man can ever pluck us from His hand until He returns and calls us home. This is the power of Christ in me. This, this identity in Christ, being united to Him, being found in Him, it transforms our affections. It transforms our thoughts. So seek the things that are above. Set your mind on Christ, who is your life. Don't look outward. Don't look inward, but look upward. Upward to the One who has made, made you a child of God who has washed away the stain of your sin. Now, we don't pursue any of these things in order to be in Christ. These things don't get us into Christ. But because we are in Christ, we labor more and more to know Him better. No steps we take to pursue spiritual mindedness earn our way to be called sons and daughters. None of the things that I have mentioned earn our way to be called sons and daughters. As we read earlier in, in our time of singing, it is all of grace that we have been saved. For by grace you have been saved. But because of the fact that we have been saved, we have been, we have been set aside for good works, to walk in them. We are to be holy as He is holy. Because we see no good apart from God, we labor to know and love Him more and more. He is the fountain of all good. The fountain of all good. Do you believe that? He is the fountain of all good. The spring from which flows forth grace. He is the all-satisfying one. There's nothing this world has to offer that can satisfy you. Nothing. Look to Christ. He is the all-satisfying one. He is the never-failing one. The never-failing one. He is the God who loves us. He is the God who saves us. He is the God who keeps us. So set your mind. Set your mind and all your affections on Christ. Bow your heads and pray with me. Oh, Father, we turn to You. We set our, our minds on You. And Lord, we, we ask that You help us. Help us to live today in light of who we are in eternity. In light of the fact that when You appear, we will appear with You in glory. Help us to live in light of who we are in the past. We have died with You and been buried with You. And Lord, help us to live in light of this present reality that we are hidden, safe and secure with Christ and God. 
Lord, it's only by your Spirit that we can, we can walk these things out. And so we, we ask, Spirit, that you, that you help us. Help us to faithfully seek that which is above. Help us to faithfully set our minds on that which is above, not on the things of earth. Lord, give us perspective to, to see how fleeting this world is. Give us perspective to see that, that this world is just filled with, with tin and, and brass and, and things that will rot and destroy. But in you is life everlasting. So we, we turn to you and we, we put our hope in you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.